You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. In the previous episode of this podcast, we aired the first half of this interview with Stephen Collis. The reasons for the title of the episode, just saying, not saying, will become clear in this half, where we really get down and dirty with the collection, really diving into the poetry in ways that we didn't in the first half. The form, those uh, apparently distinct four sections of that collection, yet bleed into each other. I add that Collis also uses this interesting technique of the backslash that connects as much as it separates. I ask him in this interview to comment more fully on the use of the backsplash, of punctuation in general, and its place in this collection. This is what he had to say. Any of my creative writing students could attest the fact that I'm a little bit anti-punctuation in general in poetry. <laughs> uh, especially find commas ugly, you know, dangling below the line. What are they even doing there? I, I don't know. Line breaks usually do the work that punctuation, we think punctuation does. So, yeah. Mm. Anyhow. <laughs> so I, I think if you look back at past books of mine, you'll, you'll see books where there's almost no punctuation whatsoever. Mm. Um, so part of me was thinking about punctuation, I think. Um, and, and trying to you know, poke at my own anxieties about what punctuation does on a, on a page of poetry. And, and I do, you know, partially this is all aesthetics and the look of a page. And I want words to, to sit there in their autonomy and isolation and alienness. Like that's partially what poetry's for too, for us. Really draw our attention to what words are materially, sonically, how they function, how we relate to them as these, as this amazing material that we can forget mm. about because we just live in it all the time. So there, there's some of my anxiety about punctuation comes from things like that. But I, I, I think I just stumbled upon the backslash and I started thinking about it as a, as a kind of punctuation, what it does. And it's exactly, one part of it is exactly what you just said, right? That it can go in two directions at once. I thought, well, that's, mm-hmm. there's something almost metaphorical, symbolic about that. Yeah. And also the, the either or that punctuation gets used for, right? It's this slash or that, you know, even casually on Twitter or something, <laughs> we'll use it that way. It's this, it's this wonderful way of saying, just saying, not saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of wanted to write a book, uh, especially on climate change, that was like constantly saying, just saying, not saying, you know, <laughs> just saying we're all going to die, not saying, you know, <laughs> um, that sort of thing. So I, I, I feel like that's what it's doing there. And I, and I, and I want it to sort of proliferate like a, like a weed through the book and just, just sometimes be there in ways where very consciously it's mm. trying to play that game of saying, not saying but also times where it's just sort of almost haphazardly, not quite, but almost casually, let's say. It's just, it's a casual piece of punctuation sometimes in the book. But I, I want also, I wanted that hesitancy throughout the book, that, that uncertainty, right? You know, is it this, or maybe it's that, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. is this believable, or should I say this? And I, I just wanted it to hesitate constantly. It does that work. It's very effective. It also in um, changing the pace. Yeah effectively changing the pace, I think. Yeah, um, good. 
Also, I wanted to ask you about the sheer volume of other poets and poetry you reference, the mulch out of which your own poems right. seem to grow. <laughs> so I, I know I, I noticed offhand uh, Jordan Abel's Place of Scraps and Fred Bois and William Blake, yeah. to name a few. So how necessary are they yeah. to the growth of your poetry? Uh, oh, fundamental. Absolutely necessary. Uh, Years ago, I read in a book of Susan Howes, an American poet, she talks about, uh, she's writing a poem mm. through Melville's writing. Um, so using Melville, sort of writing, inhabiting and writing inside Melville's own writing. And, she, and, and, and especially books that she knew Melville had read. In fact, she had some sort of weird book that had gathered all the marginalia Melville had ever made in any book he'd ever read. And she was using that as a way to read Melville through the <laughs> markings Melville left in other people's books. And, and she said, you know, one way to engage with a beloved author is to, to follow them through words of others, almost like yeah. through a forest, right? Through, through words of others. And that's always been, I realized how I read in order to write was I, I, I needed the company of other writers and their words constantly. I always wanted to engage with them. This goes way back to like 30 years ago when I was in a creative writing class and quoting whoever in a poem and my teacher going, what are you doing? I mean, it's, this is it's about self-expression, not about what you're reading. I'm like, forget, forget myself. These people are way more interesting. Um, but, but it's that kind of uh, sense in which poetry is always a conversation with itself across time throughout its history. Mm -hmm. um, the poets are constantly looking back to forms or interventions earlier authors have made and picking it up and a sense of carrying that forward through time. Uh, that's always been a lot for me. I mean, you know, you've got Blake's reading Dante and Dante's reading Virgil and Virgil's reading Homer and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not to name a whole bunch of dudes, but it, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, rife throughout poetry. <laughs> there are dudettes in there as well. <laughs> there's dudettes. There's, there's lots of dudettes. The dudettes are, are super important and they, they have been to me for sure. It's sort of a fundamental precursors too. <laughs> well, mea culpa. I mean, I'm the one picking out the male authors. They're the ones I happen to recognize or the male poets through, through your work. I was, there was also Yeats and I recognize, um, yeah, T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of Alfred J. Prufrock in there as well. There oh, is that in there? I don't, I don't remember. That it be. is. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> uh, this is in, on page uh, 69, find a cave in time and go down. Let us go down then, you and I. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, that is. Oops. <laughs> what are you pilfering? I mean, there's lots of Dante, Dante through that little bit. As well, too. yes, yes. Yeah. There yeah. also seem to be several references to Milton's Paradise Lost, the epic that begins with the invocation of the muse. So yeah. there seems to be this invocation that's happening at various junctures. Although I see this collection as less as an epic and more as an elegy. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that characterization for sure. Although it's sometimes hard to avoid that sort of epic voice. I mean, it's so um, sexy and, and, and it's so um, meaty and draws you toward it. I think as a poet, you know, I, at least I am, I, I, I really see poetry as a kind of public speaking. I always hear this, mm -hmm. you know, it's not my voice necessarily, but the voice I hear in the poem is often up on its soapbox somewhere <laughs> trying to talk <laughs> to all and any. So that, yeah, that, no doubt. Also, it's a book where you're often in the underworld in some way. Um, I think it's often trying to probe, you know, well, here we are. We're all dead. Boy, we made a mess of that, didn't we? 
how, how did we get here? <laughs> you see, there's the humor that I'm talking about and the weight. They're both there in, in a right. kind of, in that kind of assessment. There's also a place for in this dark underworld, a place for academics, <laughs> which doesn't surprise me. Yes. Um, you're both an academic and a poet. Uh, you don't seem to have a lot of patience with academics in this book who, to my mind, seem to come across like a bunch of wannabe gang members throwing weak punches <laughs> outside of a bar that they never had the courage to enter in the first place. Oh, dear. <laughs> that must be subconscious. I mean, a, a therapist would have something to say about that, I think. <laughs> so where are they? That's it. Where, where are the academics for you as a reader of the book? <laughs> I can think of one place where they would be and one form of uh, them. <laughs> here, it's on the last page of the collection. Did we take this too far into the mundane? No precedence for our delinquents who squabble outside yeah. while awnings close and the deluge, yeah. they call it, comes to our streets. All paper becoming digital liquid as it crests. That's, I've only read an excerpt, but it seems to me like that's one of those moments where you have these intellectuals yeah. who could have done something more and instead are arguing about the most inane things. Yeah, yeah. Even the page before this mentions uh, even the Académie en Français uh, tints its wine, which is actually a lot of that poem. The title poem is collaged uh, oh. in a really weird oh, way I where I, I used a poem by Guillaume Apollinaire called Il Pleut, or the, the concrete poem where the letters trickle down the page. And I created, I, I made like a, like, like we used to make like an overhead, you know, one of those things are an acetate kind of see-through page of that poem, then laid it over pages of this book called The History mm -hmm. of the Theories of Rain, this mid-century uh, meteorological book. So I, so I let the rain sort of run down the page. And then I would just sort of follow where interesting combinations between Mallarmé and this book occur, then pull language out. Uh, and then start collaging and finding interesting little phrases and then start riffing in response to them. So it's now hard to, uh, hard for me to remember when, when you read a passage like that, is that me? <laughs> is that Mallarmé? Is that the author of this, um, you know, Come on, old, Stephen, uh, take credit for it. Book? Take credit for it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the aspiration, and again, maybe I, I feel like I want to say for poetry but in general, but that's probably not true. But the aspiration for me is always to be... Um, to, to imagine a, a, a very strange collective identity and voice that goes far beyond anything I know or can say mm. um, to, to, to sort of erase individuality and, and find some sort of voice uh, that's rattling around inside of literature and texts all on its own. Uh, but academics. Yes. I was remembering, <laughs> I was remembering the other passage. It's a, there's something about regionalism Yes. And you're, so there's, there are uh, two voices being caught in the middle yeah. of the lyric. And so one of them is yeah. someone mentioning, mm. oh, the other regionalism and the poetic voice responds something like, what was the, what was the first one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something exactly. like that. Yeah, if I can swear that other voice goes, oh, fuck, where, where, where'd they huck <laughs> the old one? If there's a new regionalism, where'd they huck the old one? Uh, yeah, so there are. That's the moment. Yeah, you're right. And, and I think yeah, uh, less so a matter of, any academic colleagues I might know, uh, if there's if there's a skewering, it's of that, as you were saying, I think, you know, that mindset that uh, can discuss things no end uh, and in quite, you know, nuanced theoretical ways that have little impact at the end of the day on what's really going on. 
perhaps. <laughs> Where's my backslash? Where's my backslash? But <laughs> <laughs> my brother reading this would say, "You're always undercutting yourself. You know, you should you should take a, a clearer stand." And I'm like, "No, no, I, I definitely want to undercut myself." <laughs> when your brother says that, it's possible that he's challenging you to to be more confident in the kind of assertions that you're making. Yeah. But on the other hand, that the voice that you're projecting also allows us, yeah. your readers, to identify better with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, so. the, the, the best, what is it, the best lack conviction, going back to Yates again. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and that may be part of the problem we're in, in the world in general, is that it's the, the assholes that think they know exactly what's going on with them, what to do. And a lot of us are just... Uh, baffled by the complexity we find ourselves in and uncertain of how to how to get find our way out of this maze that's bewildered yeah exactly bewildered and that's that's okay that's human we're we're we're, some some biologists at one time said that all animals are as dumb enough as they can get away with being and survive including (laughs) us it's it's a lot of i love that it's it's a lot of to run a brain it's a lot of energy so there's a big energy draw on running our brains. Um, and yep, we're going to be just as stupid as we can get away with being. And we're, we're putting that to the test, I think. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid too. That that's what we're doing. All right. As one academic to another, so let's set aside the poet, one <laughs> academic to another. I want to ask you the question about how an academic should teach this book in a university class? What's the ideal scenario for you? Oh my gosh. Wow. That's, that's a great question. Not one I've ever thought of. I mean, when I teach, teach work like this, uh, I really do encourage students to, to explore really broadly, to, to be okay with their confusions. Uh, you know, so quote, difficult contemporary poetry students are always go, but I, but I don't get it. I must be dumb. I'm just not getting it right away. And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's, it's not about getting it right away. I mean, I think the author has approached things that are difficult to say, and that's what the poem's for, to try and get at those things mm-hmm. that are difficult to say. And that means uh, approaching them obliquely, catching a glimpse mm-hmm. of them out of the corner of the eye, having to ask lots of questions about what, what was that in that line? Did I, did I hear that correctly? Is that what I think I could see there? And, and to, to be okay. There's a, an American poet, Robert Duncan, describes poetry as oh, the yes. intellectual adventure of not knowing. i always tell my students that when we're reading contemporary poetry this is an adventure of not really knowing what's going on and poetry is there to put us in that space to put us a little off balance to help us pay attention to those things that are really hard to put into words or put our finger on and that's that's the work of poetry to to engage with that struggle Mm -hmm. Um, you know there are poems that say very straightforward clear and interesting things and that's fine and sometimes i love them but i really love the things that get us into the tangle, as it were. And that's one of my, my definitions of poetry I, I carry around with you, or, or, or it's a definition, but but a mission statement for poetry. And that that's that it's that its job is to to locate and enliven our entanglements. Mm. You could think of entanglement as in a, a quantum sense. You could think of it in a uh, an emotional sense, those things that you know, I really shouldn't like this person, but I can't stop liking this person. <laughs> I should get this person out of my life. I just can't do it. I can't put um, this book you know, down. <laughs> I can't put this book down. I know. Exactly. So uh, I think that's what poetry is there for. It's not to like solve a riddle, but it's to deepen the riddle. 
to draw us further into the labyrinth, as it were. It's not a thread to get out of the labyrinth, but it always takes us back into the labyrinth. Uh, anyway, those are lots of ways I sort of approach contemporary poetry when I'm teaching it. So I guess I would hope someone would be doing similar with this book. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking of your image of the labyrinth. And the, the problem, of course, is the moment that they encounter the minotaur. Then what? That's true. That's run. <laughs> run. You might not get out of there, but you might lose the minotaur somewhere in there. I don't know. <laughs> Could I ask you, is it possible to ask you to read a poem sure. from the collection for the listeners? Absolutely. That'd be great. Do, do you have something you'd like me to read? Try to pick something. If you'd like, you can just pick something. There are so many that, that I loved, so I can suggest a couple, but otherwise... It... Well, why don't you suggest something? That's fun for me. <laughs> um, I really loved Then We Outgrew Meaning After All. It's on page 67. Woo. Okay, that's a that's an interesting one to pick. <laughs> but no, that's a good one. I have several, but as I say, that was one of them. It's part yeah. one and part two. Part two, I was... Exactly. Uh, Should I read yes, it? Yes, please. This is great because this isn't one I isn't one I usually read. Oh, that's great. So it makes it more of an adventure for me to read it. <laughs> then we outgrew meaning after all. The universe a foxtail scattering, light from the tip of each red strand sparkling in search of a glimpse of wolves, or a time we could call the time of wolves. Although I think we meant foxes and did not understand time, its curious curvature, its threading itself back into itself over and over, forgetting the future method and madness, starting out from moorings, vessels and animals, both small boats and small bodies yelping or licking their wet new brood rocking on the waves. I'm pretty sure it was a fox in the end. The one thought it had to find new time mechanics, to work on what had at last broken down, next to the boat or species being, the exhausted sea run aground there, panting. Pause, footnote, whole bunch of references to a whole bunch of writers all in that last little stanza, <laughs> but we'll go on. <laughs> but dudes, we aren't in the world you think we are in anymore. Sea rise to quench forest fire, Alania Kia is where we are, tempest-tossed, feathers of light and explosion sparkling, animal tail or wayward vessel, smallest shrapnel hurtling, billion-year instance of flame, the whole composed of yet tinier versions of itself, will at vast timescales drift away, like smoke a hundred thousand times, our galaxy's density drifting away like smoke, what little time we have to ask then. Was it we refused this, or we who have been refused? Or is the question still, what do you mean, we, white man? I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. I just love it. Fun for me to read, too. <laughs> I'd be reminded. Stephen, thank you so much. Um, before I conclude, oh. is there anything you want to ask yeah. me, or is there a question that you would have liked me to have asked you? Oh. <sighs> Wow, that's that's great. I mean, uh, um, I don't know, but uh, one thing I'll just mention in passing is that there's one thing that that's really a subtext in this book that doesn't really exist on the surface of it a, a lot of the time. But that's about uh, migrancy and displacement and refugees and refuge and uh, a lot of the work I've done in the last seven years um, as I, as I've wandered away from mm -hmm. sort of um, 
pipeline <laughs> sort of uh, uh, a- activism, <laughs> um, is work I've done in the UK around refugees and, and asylum oh, seekers, uh, which I was invited to come participate in as, as a writer, and it just took over, and now I can't um, stop uh, going there every year when mm-hmm. I can and spending time with these people um, and working on project with a, a group of other supporters over there. Uh, but that's that's sort of this book has been written while doing that work. And I, I, as I flip through this, there's constant little messages of borders, of refuge, of mi- migration of plants, animals, and human beings mobile in the world. Um, so that's something as a, something related to climate change that's constantly on my mind in this period. And again, it's a weird thing temporally because it's it, there's it, yes, it's happening now, but we know it's really going to happen in the near future, you know, mass know. displacement because of climate. We do. In fact, I, I, as you said this, I gasped because I realized it was a question that I had for you. Huh. I thought even that the backsplash might've been a conscious choice in relation to, here's my question, to the sheer number of references huh. to the borders or the border. Yeah. And then I have page citations, page 52, page yep. 55, 58, 63, and so yep. on. It proliferates throughout this book. So I did actually notice and yeah. meant to ask that question of you. And so now you've answered. Well, I'm glad it, I'm glad it's noticeable. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's funny, this part of our struggle with climate change and people bring this up all the time is the abstraction of it, even though it's it shouldn't be so abstract in, on the coast here. We've just gone through a year in which we had a heat, heat dome, dome and yes. was, yeah, some of the worst uh, wildfires we've had ever. And then the atmospheric river in the fall and et cetera, et cetera, where we're living the effects of climate change right now. And it's, it's displacing people right here in BC, mm-hmm. uh, as it did extensively this year. Nonetheless, it, it's to think about the future and warming is to engage with uh, abstractions. But when you're face to face with a human being who can tell you exactly, you know, where they ran and walked to and why and the bodies and water they crossed and mountains they had to climb over and, um, you know, moving trains they leapt upon to go through the channel into England and things like this, um, it just becomes that much more immediate and material Mm -hmm. and, and real. You can hug that person. <laughs> I can't. I can't hug the person you know fifty years from now who's having a really rough time because of climate change. But I can hug these people now, and they wouldn't say necessarily that oh, it's climate change what I was running from. But the war they ran from is in part fueled by climate change. This is in the Middle East and Africa primarily. These things are inseparable right now. The importance of empathy in in, in this yeah. kind of endeavor too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for being willing to, to talk to me today. Thank you so much for joining thank me you. here. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Linda. And that was the second half of my interview with Stephen Collis, with whom I chatted about his book, A History of the Theories of Rain, published in 2021 by Talon Press and shortlisted for a Governor General's Award. And this is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Canada Reads 2022 just wrapped up its season. Yes, my international listeners, this is a competition or a battle whereby five different personalities champion five different books. Every week, one book is voted out of the competition until the winning book remains. This year, Canada Reads celebrated its 20th anniversary. It was first broadcast in 2002. This is quite unlike the Governor General's Award or the Scotiabank Giller Prize, two of the most prestigious literary awards in Canada. 
The Canada Reads also carries significant weight and certainly draws considerable attention to the authors included in its roster. So, the results are in for Canada Reads 2002, and the winner is Michelle Good's Five Little Indians, championed by Ojibwe fashion journalist Christian Allaire. Scarborough by Catherine Hernandez, championed by actor Malia Baker, was the runner-up. Now, I confess... I've not yet had the opportunity to read either of these books, but I absolutely intend on doing so. And in fact, I'd say it's quite likely I'll be devoting an entire episode in this coming season to at least one, if not both, books. But here's what I want to know. Did Canada Reads get it right? Should Five Little Indians have won? Or Scarborough? or another one of its shortlisted books, including a book I've already covered and loved, Clayton Thomas Muller's Life in the City of Dirty Water, or Isia de Goyen's Washington Black, or Omer Elakad's What Strange Paradise. Drop us a line at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com and let us know what you think. We'd be very happy to hear from you, and maybe even include your responses in an upcoming episode of this podcast. In the meantime... Thanks for tuning in again, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.